Hear the word of the Lord. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no children. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwellings, spare not, lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations and they will resettle the desolate places. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. Neither feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Amen. You may be seated. Our focus will be centered particularly around verse 2 as we continue to explore and expound upon the theme of the year, the year of the stretch, as we talk about how God will certainly move in the composition of our existence in this year, both as church and people, to expand us, to stretch us beyond means to which we certainly never considered but in this text, I've given the title because as you read the text repeatedly in the context, and the context is this, Israel is now ready to return from exile. Remember, the exile is really Israel's punishment for breaking the covenant with God for putting other gods or idols in the space of God, which is the violation of Exodus 20, thou shall have no other gods before me. It is their breaking this covenant relationship as God says, you will be my people and I will be your God. Jeremiah uses the analogy that Israel keeps whoring themselves. They keep going after others to which supplies no substance in their life. And so God says, because of your disobedience, I'm going to allow the Chaldeans or the Babylonians or the Assyrians to bring you into both subjection and captivity for 70 years. <clears throat> And that 70-year period will be my judgment, but yet discipline, <clears throat> excuse me, to bring you where you need to be. Isaiah 54 is their preparation to return from the exile. Because how many of you know, doing 70 years, a lot can change in terms of your mentality. And even their comprehension and now opinion of God is much different because those who went into the exile are not only older, but at least they have a history with God. But those who were born in exile have no history. And so now the only way that they can interpret God is the environment to which they find themselves growing up within. And so their perception of God is much different than those who've had a journey with God. That's the reason why you can't just depend on someone else's testimony in reference to the provision and the protection of God, but you've got to encounter that for your self and here they are in exile but we often forget as I made mention this morning when we read Jeremiah 29 we are quick to rush to Jeremiah 29 verse 11 where Jeremiah says that God says for I know the plans that I have for you 
plans not to harm you, but to bless you and prosper you and plans to give you a future and hope. We read that, though, without reading verse 10. And we found out, at least the choir members did in verse 10 this morning, you dare not read 11 until you read 10. Because 10 says, I'm going to put you there for 70 years. But the 70 years will come to an end. Now that went right over your head, but if you think about that, contextualize that, you got to think whatever condition you currently now find yourself within, whatever that condition is, it will come to an end. God has a time frame to which perhaps even God may have permitted your journey to embrace that particular experience because God may very well be not only disciplining you, which means that you probably have, you shouldn't say you probably, you may have walked out of the will of God. You may be disregarding the will of God for your life. You may have decided that you are smart enough and big enough and strong enough to make the journey work on your own and God can only be your consultant every now and then. So you stepped out and did your own thing and God let you allow your journey to go into the direction that it went, not understanding that even that though, God has a time limit. For God is only merely saying to you that you cannot be the reproduction that I want you to be until you become receptive of what I'm trying to do. And what I'm trying to do is discipline you to understand that you need my direction. So Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart because God is trying to get all that you are. Jeremiah 29 says, uh, verse 12 and 13 and 14, you seek me, you will find me, but only if you seek me with all of your heart, then you're gonna find me. So God is saying, I'm trying to get you to give me your heart and then in all your ways, every dimension of your life, acknowledge me. Talk with me. The writer in Proverbs says that when you lay your plans before the Lord, talk with God before you set out on the journey. God will make a way for you. God will show you what direction you need to go, but you got to have a talk with God. In all your ways, acknowledge him, says the writer, and he will direct your path. They are in a space where they are about ready to leave the exile, but the question becomes, do they really want to leave? Because some were born there, some were transposed there. And those who are now ready to leave, because eventually when you read Jeremiah and Isaiah, you read uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, some didn't leave Babylon. In fact, they stayed there. They hung out because that was the only environment that they knew. And in fact, they were quite successful as a result of living in Babylon. But there were others who wanted to return to Jerusalem. If you read Jeremiah 29, 10, God says, you will be in captivity for 70 years, but it will come to an end and I will revisit you and will bring you back to where you started from in Jerusalem. And so there are those who are in the exile who are wondering, why do I want to go back to Jerusalem when I've never been there before? And then there were others who were probably wrestling with, will we ever get back to where we were in the state and space of Jerusalem? Some of us might be in a space in our own lives now where we have been bruised and we have been assaulted and we have been disappointed and we have been discouraged by life's journey and now we wonder will we ever get back to the space that was before the exile. At least God says, rest assured, there's a time frame. And not only in that time frame, but let me make you the promise. I told you I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so wherever you are, I am there. You may not think I'm there, but have you noticed when you call upon my name, I can easily be found. 
I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And whenever I need to be there in terms of you recognizing my physical presence, it's always there. What their mentality has to shift is from being one that has been, uh, should I say, scarred by poverty and now they are going to experience the outpouring of God's provision. Because God says, when you read Isaiah 54, here's, here's something amazing. In 53, he talks about the suffering servant. He talks about how Jesus, in a very metaphorical and parallel way, becomes the servant who gives his life for all. And there's absolutely nothing appealing about not only Jesus in what he does, but even in Jesus, the way he looks. In fact, Isaiah said he grows up like a tender plant before us and a root out of a dry ground. And when we look at him, there is no form nor comeliness. Translation from the Hebrew, there is nothing attractive about looking at Jesus in this suffering servant mode. But yet, when we get to Isaiah 54, it transitions from a suffering servant to a servant who's freed from suffering. It is where Isaiah tells us that God is about to rain down the provision of life by way of abundance and prosperity and reminds us that what he is about to do, you need more room to receive it. And here it is in the text. In verse 1 through 4, God says, are you really ready for what I have in store for you. Here's a bigger question. Can you stand to be blessed by God? We wrestled with the idea of the word success because in the Christian context, the word has almost become demonized. We use the modern term prosperity. Whenever we hear it, we think in terms of physical or material abundance, and yet now we've brought into the concept that it's almost unchristian to enjoy the provisions of life. And yet God says in the word that he's given us everything to richly enjoy. And if God has done that, why is there a shame within us to enjoy being blessed by God? In fact, the writer says in 3 John 2 that he wish above all things that you prosper even as your soul prospers. He not only wants you to be in good health and strength in your body, soul, and spirit, but in life, in relations, in the area in which you labor every day to acquire. First, I mean, 3 John 2 says, I want you to be excited and prosperous and happy about that divine provision. Listen to what Psalm 35 verse 27 says. Let the Lord be magnified for the Lord takes pleasure in the progress, prosperity, success of his servants. I don't know about you, but I can celebrate God a whole lot happier and better when I have more than enough. Job 36, 11 says, if you obey the Lord and serve him, God will allow you to spend your days in prosperity and your eyes in pleasure. In other words, God is saying, wait a minute, I don't expect for you to live a life of asceticism. There's nothing in my word to suggest that gaining the abundance and enjoying the prosperity of life means that you are in a curse mode or that you are out of my will. The only problem comes when that becomes the priority and I have been substituted by that which is material, which cannot do anything for you in terms of when you are in the storms of life. So we've demonized, we've allowed folk from the outside to come in and tell us how wrong it is for us to be Christians, to be prosperous people. And yet prosperity in the biblical context simply means that God has given us enough of his provision to complete every assignment, every aspect of instruction in our lives. 
So here's what I think we should do. We've got to develop a mentality. It requires a shifting of our mental composition. The exiles had been conditioned by their environment. This is the reason why you have to be careful where you find yourselves on a repeated basis. Who's around you? What you are engaging in? Who you are allowing in your space? Because environmental variables can affect what you become, begin to shape what you think, begin to influence how you lead your life. And so there has to be a change in our concept of life. And I think, number one, there has to be this envy of lack. You have to come to a place where you hate, abhor lack. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like having deficiency in my presence. I don't like it when you got more month than money. Nobody should like that. But you don't want deficiency. In fact, one reason why we labor so hard is to make sure that we don't experience lack. But it's not lack just monetarily, but I don't even want lack in my spiritual relationship with God. I want everything that God has to give me, but that also means that I have to hate the fact that whatever it is that keeps me from being connected with God, it's got to go. That's the reason why Hebrews 12, 1 says, let us lay aside every weight. And the weight really means whatever it is, whatever keeps us from being in the presence of God and doing the will of God, let us lay aside every weight. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's a sinful thing but it means that it keeps me from spending time with God the way that I need to be. Then he says every weight and sin, which means that there also may be a sinful condition in my life that I need to address. I need to pray for God's forgiveness, but also for God's mercy and grace to break that yoke in my life that does so easily keeps us from spending time with God. And then let us run this race with patience so I gotta have an envy for lack because that announces deficiency but I also gotta change my mind and have an expectation for much because that speaks to the idea of capacity I've gotta begin to be to sort of train my mind to want to aspire and to grasp the maximum of whatever it is because I want all that God has to give. And if you think about this, the God who has endless grace and endless mercy and endless provision, how in the world could I ever reach maximum in God's provision? It's not possible. But just the aspiration and the trying of getting there has got to be a joy within itself. That's why Paul says, uh, now unto him, who was able, but who was able to do beyond all that we could ever ask or think. Marinate on that for a moment. What could I possibly ask of God that he couldn't do? What could I possibly think of God that he cannot provide? Just the idea of thinking that no matter how long or how long or how long or how long or how long I try to think of something that God can't do, I haven't even touched the alphabet of how God can provide. So there's an expectation and one reason why we stay in exile and we allow ourselves to live in an exilic environment is because we have no expectation of moving beyond where we are. All you got to do is read Deuteronomy chapter 1 and when Moses gets Israel across the Red Sea begin to make their journey to the promised land they get to a place called Kadesh Barnea and verse uh, 6 I believe of chapter 1 Deuteronomy says that apparently because they've gotten there they became complacent and wanted to stay right where they were and God says to Moses tell them you can't stay here. In fact, it's time for you to leave this space and move toward the journey that I have before you. 
And maybe God is telling someone in worship hour right now, I know you've been in exile for a while, but remember I told you it's going to come to an end. In fact, your end is right now, but you want to hang around where you are. You've made friends where you are. You want to stay where you are. You become comfortable where you are, complacent where you are. And God says, I'm trying to move you ahead to something more broader and better. And I have so much to give you, but where you are right now, there's not enough room around you to contain what I have to give you got to move ahead to the journey that I have before you that raises the question for us what do you expect in your life this year what's really your expectation for 2019 so I got to envy lack I got to expect much and then I got to change my mind to enjoy abundance. That means that God has given me plenty. I am announcing sufficiency. That means that I am not ashamed of what God has granted. I often think about how people rush, and they only do this in the spiritual, I mean the material realm, they rush to quote Matthew 6, 19 through 24. So that's simply not to build your treasures on earth where moth and rust and where thieves break in and steal and build them in heaven where there is no moth and there is no rust, there's no thieves. Uh, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. I want you to sit and think about that analogy that Jesus says just for a moment. Just, just think about it. And contextualize. You got to read all of Matthew 6. You just can't take that one particular example that Jesus quotes out of context because it does fits in the context of Matthew 6. But think about this for a moment. I certainly couldn't think about putting houses and land and cars and clothes in heaven because when I get there, I won't really need it. And if God is saying, don't allow those things to become the priority in terms of what you will serve, because remember in that same paragraph, God makes clear you, you as a person can't serve God and, he uses the old King James word mammon, but it's materialism. So you can't serve both. In other words, he says, one of them is gonna be the God and the other is not. But Jesus is suggesting, listen, this is why you must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, priority, and all of the other stuff shall be added unto you. In other words, people are quick to quote that but don't really understand what it means, but they never want to quote Proverbs 13, 22 translation it's bad for a man to die and don't leave an inheritance for his children's children and then the end of that verse says the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous let me translate for you if you walk in abundance and obedience there's no reason why you should be ashamed of abundance because God says what the wicked has I'll make sure you get what they have because there's no appreciation to how they've gotten what they've got but I expect for you to remember from whom all blessings flow and you need to remember the priority that I will bless the Lord at all times no matter where I am what I do how I am where I am in terms of my environment no matter what position I hold in life I'm not ashamed to tell everybody it's the Lord that opened that door for me it's by God's grace that this happened for me I'm not ashamed to credit God for anything some people don't want to leave exile they don't want to come out for several reasons number one they don't want to have to experience recognition See, if I decide to move on, then the question becomes, who am I going to give the credit to? Who am I going to say opened the door for me and made it possible for me to enjoy what I am enjoying? That's the reason why Paul says in Ephesians 2, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Here it is, lest any man should boast. 
translation. God says, uh-uh, I'm going to save you. But Paul says, and let me add another thing, it's grace that saved you and God did it that way so that when you recognize who you've been rescued by, you won't try to take the credit for the fact that God saved you, but also God keeps you. But you are willing to say, you know what, if it had not been for the grace of God that found me where I was and after I got saved, I haven't been perfect every single day, haven't dotted every I and crossed every T, but I don't know about you, but I'm shouting every day because that's another chance that God has given me to recognize it's by grace that I'm alive and well one more time. And every time I wake up in the morning, I recognize grace has given me favor one more time. Every time I lay out at night and be able to see that I had a peaceful night, it's grace that give me one more chance. And when I get up in the morning and make it through the course of the day, I recognize mercy is protecting all around me. And I'm willing to testify, Lord, if it hadn't been for your grace and your mercy, I wouldn't be where I am right now. I'll give you the recognition, Lord, because you are worthy of such. And I don't want to stay in exile. I want everything you got to give me. So if you want to put me on the hill, let me go on the hill. Even if I have to go in the valley, let me go in the valley. But, but you just make sure you never leave me nor forsake me. And he has promised me, yea, though I walk, he'll be with me. His staff and his rod will comfort me. And then he said, don't turn around. You ain't got no reason to turn around. Don't look back. Goodness and mercy is already back there. It will follow you. All the days, of, I don't mind giving God recognition. And the exiles had to think, who do we give credit to when they ask who brought you out? They not only had the problem of recognition, but, you know, when God moves you to another space, when God brings your life out of a dark space, not only recognition, but you have to deal with repentance. Because when you deal with repentance, you come to recognize, man, look at how unworthy I really am. When I look at my life and look back and I think of all the stuff that I've done voluntarily, and don't look at me like you ain't never done something that you were ashamed of this day in worship because I know if I could see God's record on your life, I would be appalled and shocked at some stuff that you have done and said. But aren't you so glad that even after all you have done, it caused you to repent and say, Father, I'm sorry, but yet I thank you for your forgiveness and for your restoration and for giving me another chance. Because God will forgive you. But the exile should also lead you to repentance. When you are in that space and you recognize, I didn't get here just because I voluntarily decided to come, something God is trying to tell me. Amen. You know what other people hate about the exile? The exile has two problems. Number one, it runs the risk for you to exposure. And the exposure is while you are there, God will unveil why you keep falling. And exposure is frightening to us because that means the one thing that we certainly do not like to do, change. 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 I, I knew they'd be quiet on me, Lord, but help me. So I can do this point. Change. See, the exposure shows up my weakness. And the exile showed up their weakness. And their weakness was God was no longer the priority in their life. They had built images of God. Read the book of Isaiah and God speaks to Isaiah and God says to them, tell them Isaiah by way of question. You done built this God, now what's it going to do for you? Because it can't speak, it can't move, it doesn't feel, and it can't provide. But take a look at me, says God, who thinks and who feels and who moves and who works on your behalf. Do you really want an idol that has no mobility at all? 
over the God who is not only mobilized, but is the God who can be everywhere at the same time. Here you are in Northern Virginia dealing with an issue and your brother, sister, father, mother, cousin, whomever is all the way down in Mississippi dealing with one and God's working them out at the same time being the same God in both contexts. That's the kind of God, says Isaiah, that you are serving. It leads us to recognize our weakness and that should lead us to repentance. But there's another problem exile does coming out also makes us responsible it means that we now have to be responsible for moving out and responsible for growing but then the question becomes as we look at the text why would they not want to embrace the promise of God L listen to what verse 2 says Verse 1, Isaiah uses the analogy of a woman who has children and a woman who does not have children. Because in ancient Hebrew history, if you want to know what's a shame to experience, it's being childless. Not being able to give birth to a child. That's the reason why you read the story of Abraham and Sarah. Sarah is so despondent because without having children, you are the shame of the community. And listen to his analogy. He tells, God tells the exiles, listen, you who don't have children, you're going to be just as excited than those who does as if you had many children. Now, how, how's that going to happen when I don't have any? And I don't even know what it means to have children because I never had any. God says, I'm going to reverse how joy elevates in your life look closely at verse 1 he says shout you barren one now, now how do I shout when I don't have how would I celebrate when what I'm reaching for is not there God says that's the meaning of the word stretch I know it's not there but I need for you to stretch by way of a shout as if it's already there because if you're willing to do that by the time you finish stretching and shouting you would have already arrived to the destiny that you shouted about even though it's not there yet y'all didn't catch it yet but you will catch it in due season in other words you've got to praise before you receive you got to celebrate that it's already there you got to already see it and although yet it's not manifested I see it coming down the pipe look what he says in verse 1 he says shout Oh, barren one, you have borne no child. Look at verse eight, Look at verse 1. Break forth in a joyful shouting and cry aloud, even though you've never had birth pains. But shout anyway. In other words, God's trying to tell somebody today, in your exilic moment, you may not have had freedom in a long time, but shout, start shouting like you've already been in for he says the sons of the desolate ones will be more numerous can you imagine that the sons of you who don't have any children will be more than those who do it's because God specializes in what we call just a position what you think it ought to be is not that's how God works you think you should go up and God says nope we're going down you think we should go forward and God says, nope, we're going backwards. You want to be ahead and God says, nope, you're going to be behind. In other words, God says, I'm going to just oppose what you think should be because that's how I work. I use what seems to be the simple to confound, to confuse humanity. They're looking for the profound. That's how we do in church. We sit and listen to see if the pastor is going to say something profound on Sunday morning. When in reality, it's the simple stuff you ought to listen to. You ought to catch that because it's the repetitiveness of hearing something simple that you grow from. Not the profound points that I've expounded to you. So he says, shout. Shout. Before you even get there. But they, that's hard for them to do. 
They won't shout for several reasons. They won't shout because number one, maybe the duration in exile has bothered them. 70 years, that's a long time. In fact, if you think about it in the Old Testament chronology, that's almost two generations. Two generations, 70 years. And God says to me to shout after I've been in exile for 70 years. I'm going to give you a statement with each one of these points. Write it down and then marinate over just a little bit. Listen to this. You are today where your thoughts have taken you. You will be tomorrow where your thoughts take you. Let me say that again because you didn't catch it. You are today where your thoughts have taken you. You will be tomorrow where your thought takes you. They could not see coming out because they had spent a long duration in captivity, 70 years. They had almost become conditioned to their environment. Some of us never see beyond our present condition. We never dream beyond moving past that point. And so as a result, we can't come out because the duration has us bound. Point number two. Maybe it's not the duration, but it's the discipline as I mentioned earlier. It's the fact that they are there and God is shaping and yet Jeremiah 18 and 19 tells us that God says that he is the potter and we are the pottery and the potter has the responsibility, has the right to put the pottery on the changing wheel. And when he puts us on the wheel, he makes us into what he wants us to be. And Paul would later come along, I think it's in Romans 4, and tell us the potter, the pottery, doesn't have a right to tell the potterer what you want to be. Because the potter is the designer of the pottery. Here's the second statement. Because in disciplining, God is trying to do something and say something if you're hearing and listening. Here's the second statement. We do not suddenly become what we do not cooperate in becoming. Let me say it again. We do not suddenly become what we do not cooperate in becoming. In other words, God says I'm trying to shape you into becoming something, but you won't cooperate. You are determined to have it your way. Y'all done got quiet on me now. Y'all were shouting before when I talked about provision. Y'all were happy. Now we're talking about shaping, and shaping is painful. God takes out the carving knife and begins to cut off access and be cut away areas that we say, God, don't go over there. Let's, let's work with that later. And God says, no, we're going to work with that right now because I'm trying to help you become, but you won't cooperate. And because you won't cooperate, you're going to hold on to that exile mentality. They don't want to leave because of duration, maybe. They don't want to leave because of discipline. Maybe they don't want to leave because of doubts. They doubt if they leave out of the space that they are, that there might be problems going into the new horizon and they might not be able to handle it. That's what we get from the book of Exodus when Israel is leaving Egypt and remember they're coming out and when they hit the first obstacle and it hadn't even really done anything, it's just a sea standing before you and they look at Moses and say, man, you brought us out here to die in the wilderness. We would have been better off. And by the way, they weren't even in the wilderness yet. You weren't even in the wilderness. You, just, you hadn't even got out of the city yet. And you already 
crying. And if they had thought about the prophecy that God had gave Abraham in reference to the descendancy of his seed, that they would spend 400 years in slavery. But the nation that enslaved them, that oppressed them, would be handled. And then God said, here's another prophecy for you. You will not leave that city empty-handed. Y'all didn't catch it. You, you didn't catch it. God said, listen, you may have went there as slaves. They may have enslaved you. But when you come out, they're going to be more than enough than you've ever imagined in terms of success. And here it is. You didn't have to ask them to give it to you. You read the book of Exodus. The Egyptian says, would you please leave as soon as possible? And here, take all of the wealth that we have and get out of our town. they were doubting as soon as they saw the Red Sea they told Moses we would have been better off if you had left us where we were making brick with straw at least we had cucumbers tomatoes and lettuce to work with and water but they wasn't willing to trust the God who had filet me young waiting on them in the wilderness. But they wanted to settle for lack. Here's another statement. The first and most important step towards success is the expectation that you can succeed. Let me say it again. The first and most important step towards success is the expectation that you can succeed. How do you know that, Pastor? Very easily. When they finally got into the wilderness, when Joshua now became, uh, when Moses, before they were getting, when they got into the wilderness, Moses was beginning to try to fulfill the promise of the land of Canaan being their land. He sends a delegate into Canaan. 12 spies are sent to check out Canaan. When all 12 return to inform Moses of what they saw, here they are, here, here, here's their testimony. You right, you, man, you right. That land is full of abundance. The grapes on the trees is humongous. That place is booming with success. But 10 of them said, all in unison, but, talking about perfect harmony, there it was, but we notice that the land is full of giants and we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. Who told you you were a grasshopper? And who said that they were giants? You mean to tell me that the God that you serve ain't larger than what you see? You gonna suggest to me that God's made a promise and he ain't big enough and bad enough and bold enough to follow through on it? And the folk, I'm convinced, in the community, in the camp, was about to settle for what they had. But thank God for a remedy. Here comes Joshua and Caleb. Hold up. Wait a minute. Let's put this thing on blast. Oh, no. Yeah, they, 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 they might look like giants. I ain't saying it, but they might look like giants. But the God that we serve has made us a promise. And the promise is we can conquer the land. I told you the first and foremost important thing is you got to believe that in your coming out, you're going to be successful. I'm going to break this exilic place. I'm going to get out of this space. I'm going to be victorious. And even if I have to travel into spaces of the unknown, never been here before, I've got to navigate through unknown territory. It's all right because as long as God is my direction, he will lead me down the path of righteousness 
for his name's sake. In other words, God says, everywhere you go, you represent me because you current my name. I'm not going to let you embarrass me, but if you trust me, I'll lead you where you need to go and I'll make sure everything that you need, it will always be provided for you. Just lean on his everlasting arm. Well, let's not hold you too long. Let me hurry on. They had doubts. And some of you might be wrestling with doubt. Jeremiah 29, or Jeremiah 10. Jeremiah 10, the writer says that, that God tells the people, remember what I did for you in the past. So I'm here to tell you that you might have doubts where you are, but remember on the way to where you are right now, who kept you? Who watched over you? Who protected you? Who made sure that no harm came to you? In fact, why you are where you are right now, who is it that keeps waking you up in the morning and keeps watching over you every single day and who keeps making sure that you are provided for? Who is it that keeps giving you the energy and the strength that you need to walk through the day and to make sure by the end of the day you might be wore out but you thank God for the provision of power one more time? Who is it that keeps on opening doors for you and making a way for you? I'm talking about a God who watches out for his own. You've got to learn to tell doubt. Get out of my mind and out of my presence because I'm replacing it with hope and faith. Or maybe they didn't want to come out because of disappointments. See, disappointment says what should have been was not. Instead, what they never imagined became. They never imagined they would be in exile. What they thought should have been was that they took the grace of God for granted. That every time they had a battle that God would come through and rescue them. They also thought that because they had done wrong, because God has always forgiven and God will, that he would also continue to bless. And let me tell you this, when you take God's grace for granted, God will cut you off. Oh, I'll forgive you. God says, I'll forgive you. But I'm going to get your attention and make sure that you understand hood vernacular you ain't gonna treat me like that not as good as I've been to you come on can I get a witness I mean let's think about it if, if the way we treat God sometimes if God stood up and said oh no you ain't gonna uh uh you're not gonna do me like that you're not gonna come to my table and eat my food and then turn around and spit in my face cause you mad at what I prepared for you absolutely not you're not gonna wear my clothes in the heart of the winter and then get mad cause it wasn't the kind of designer clothes that you absolutely not I'm gonna help you understand I'm the one who provides all your needs you're going to learn to appreciate from whom all blessings flow. Here's my final statement. Nothing is so embarrassing as watching someone do something that you said could not be done. Can you imagine the Israelites when they finally did take what Joshua and Caleb said as true. When Moses dies, Joshua takes control and Joshua actually leads them across the Jordan and they cross over into Canaan and the first thing they have to do is conquer Jericho and they walk around the wall and on the seventh day the wall does fall as a result of one thing that we just don't like to do shout because they recognize when God says the first time go around the wall don't say a single word just go around one time and then go on back to your business and you can hear people complaining why we walk around this wall ain't saying nothing we ought to at least thank the Lord or something in our hearts and minds but he talking about just walk around the wall he just makes me sick sometimes all he talk about walking around the wall and then on the seventh 
seventh day, they walked around seven times and the priest held up the trumpet and they started to blow it. And then Joshua says, when the priest finished blowing, you shout and watch the walls come tumbling down. And when they did that, the walls came falling down. And can you see those folk around that wall who saw that wall come down, who had said in the beginning, it ain't going to work, this can't done. Don't no walls fall down because somebody's shouting. And here they are watching the walls come down. And I can just imagine them saying to themselves how foolish we were to doubt the power of God. They were disappointed because what they thought couldn't happen happened. And maybe you are broken. Maybe you are bruised. Maybe you are injured. Maybe life has done it to you. It's unfair. But if you haven't lived long enough, keep on living. You'll learn life is not fair. You can't understand why all of this preaching and shouting, we talk about God protecting you and God taking care of you and God let this happen to you. I wish I could answer that question for you. I can't. But understand this. You ain't the first. And I can guarantee you, you will not be the last. Everybody in this room, I bet you, at some point in time, can give you a disappointing story that God didn't do what they thought God should have done. But I would hope and pray that they're going to follow it up by saying, but, see, here's a good time, but is in the conversation. But you know what? Even though he didn't show up when I wanted him to, even though he didn't work it out the way that I wanted him to, even though he didn't open that door the way that I wanted him to, even though he didn't bring me out the way I wanted to come out, even though he didn't dress me up the way I wanted to be dressed up, even though he didn't make me look the way I wanted to look, he still keeps on blessing me and he still keeps on providing and he still keeps on watching out for me. And I don't know about you, but I said I wasn't going to tell nobody, but because of his goodness and because of his grace and because of his mercy, I can't keep it to myself. So let me bring this to a close. I didn't kept y'all long enough. So church, we really can't understand the impact of Isaiah 54 until we hear the call of Isaiah 52. See, Isaiah 54 says, I want you to enlarge your tents. I want you to stretch out your ropes. And I want you to dig your pegs deeper. But some of us ain't ready for that. We're not ready. We're not ready according to Isaiah 52, verse 1 and 2, for several reasons. One, we still sleep. Yeah, look at verse 1, the first two words. We still sleep. We've fallen asleep on God because we fell out of communion with God. And as I told him this morning, remember, communion always comes before commission. In other words, God can't send you out until you've sat before him and he's empowered you. But we sleep. We sleep in so deep that we're not even awakened enough to sense what God is doing. Verse 1 of chapter 52 of Isaiah says the very opening words, awake, awake, which means come out of your dormant state of being inactive. Because of life's disappointment, some people disengage themselves from church. They no longer come. They stay home. 
They rationalize by saying, I just didn't feel like it, or here's the good one, here's the great one, here's the best one I think I've heard, or I can get church on TV. Or I can live stream. Now, I'm just going to tell you like this. Uh, if you've never been, I'm just going to use this example, okay? And this is not for saved people, this is for unsaved people, uh, or people like me, saved but still working on your salvation. So here we go. Uh, if you've never been to a Prince concert, that's a lot different than listening to Prince sing on a record. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll make it. I've I, I forgotten all of us, y'all so safe and holy. That, that won't work for y'all. Um, nowadays, when Christian, well, it, it didn't have to be Christian. When artists do recordings, they use what we call auto-tunes. You know what that is? That means even if you can't sing, they can make you sound like a mockingbird. In fact, some people I wonder, how you, how you get a recording? You can't even sing. And you know how you can find out that they can't sing? A live concert. You get them jokers on stage and they lip syncing. Or, this is what they doing. Yada, yada. That's how I know right there, something wrong. Uh-uh, uh-uh, you can't sing. You can't. Tell me when you ever saw Aretha Franklin. Tell me when you ever saw Luther Vandross. Tell me when you ever saw George Clinton. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. Why? Because they could sing. And when you can sing, it's a lot different live. Because when it's live, you can feel the ethos coming out of their artists. You can feel the song in their heart and the song in their hand. And you can look all over their expression. You can't see that on a CD. At church, you might can see me live streaming but you can't feel what's happening in the atmosphere. You can hear the choir singing, but you can't feel what's going on in the spirit of the singer and the choir because you're not there. The first thing we do when we are disappointed is we stop coming to church. And verse, verse 1 of 52 says, wake up! Look at the next line. Wake up, and when you wake up, as I told him this morning, what's the next thing you do? Stretch. And as I told him again, if you haven't lived long enough, keep on living. You'll, you'll see why it's important to stretch because the older you get, there's an uninvited guest named Arthur that shows up. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I... I didn't send him an email, didn't send him a text, didn't send him a letter, nothing that told him I want him to come by and see me, but he stops by and he finds places in my body and he act like he gonna set up for the long-term existence. So you need to stretch because overnight your hands get stiff and your arms get stiff and your knees get stiff and your hips, oh shoot, the whole body just gets stiff. But God says, I want you to wake up from where you are in your exilic place and stretch. Why? Because every day I want you to wake up and start saying, this is the day that the Lord has made. I am going to rejoice and be glad in it. It's another chance for me to experience what God has in store on this special day. Look what he says. Awaken. Stretch. Then the text says, clothe yourself. Put on your strength. One reason why God can't bless you in public is because you won't let him bless you in private. God says, when you go out in public, I want folk to see that you've been with Jesus. 
And the way that you do that is before you even start your morning, how about stop by and have a conversation with me just for a little while. Was grandmama right when she said just a little talk with Jesus? Tell him all about your sorrows. He will. Will he answer by and by? And then when you feel a little prayer wheel turning, Jesus will make everything all right. This is, this is, this, I hope this helps you, but this is really why I do this every morning around 4 a.m. That's my devotion time. Ain't nobody moving around but me and the dog, and the dog is still asleep at that time anyway. So just me. I'm chilling in my study. This is my time when I read my Bible and I just have to read scripture. And I do this for one reason, because I'm not aware of what the day holds for me. I don't know what demons going to rise up and decide that this is the day that we're going to attack James. I don't know what's out there ahead of me. I don't know what hell is waiting on me. I don't know what trouble is waiting in the street. So I believe that I have to get up early in the morning and I have to have a talk with God. And I have to say, Lord, whatever you do, build a fence all around me and protect me through the course of this day because I don't know what's out there, but I know that you know, and put angels all around me. And Lord, even though I know I don't deserve it, give me some favor through the course of the day. And I need to do that early. And then when I'm out there, Lord, let me represent you and let me tell you something. Here's why I think you need to do that. Here's a byproduct. I'm almost done. I'm telling you, church, it doesn't matter where I go. I'm telling you, it doesn't matter where I go. Someone is going to walk in front of me or tap me on the shoulder. How you doing, Reverend Murphy? Don't know who they are. Never seen them before. At least I don't remember seeing them. But somebody is seeing me wherever I am. Now, here's what I'm trying to tell you. If I'm not prayed up in the morning, I might mess around and be out there acting like a you-know-what fool and they walk up on me. And you know how we get that look. Red Murphy, is that you? You know it's me. You, you, you know it's me. Here's my point. You got to be prayed up because you never know who God will send in your path and who God will have you to minister to on that day. Wake up and clothe yourself in your strength. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? But look what it says. Not only that, but put on your beautiful garments. In other words, Isaiah says, when God wakes you up in the morning, do me a favor. Leave your depressed look, your sad face, your long face, your disappointed face. Leave that stuff in the house at the altar and put on your joy and put on your peace and put on your prosperity and walk in the abundance that you've been called to walk in. Here it is, here it is. Because... When you put on your beautiful garments, I want you to shake yourself from the dust. You see that in verse two? Shake yourself from the dust. From the dust. Now, I've created, I'm created from the dust. And maybe Isaiah is suggesting that some of us have been hanging out in exile so long, we are now being covered by the dust. And he's saying, shake yourself from the dusty space of complacency and come out to victory. Look at the text. And loose yourself from the chains around your neck because God is about to set you free. That's your word right there. I did all that to say that, what, that last line. Because God says, I'm about to set you free right now. Do you want to be free? Because here it is, what I have to give you right now where you are, you ain't got enough room to handle it. Do you understand the magnitude of that statement? 
Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to talk about how God stretches you in giving. <laughs> Y'all got quiet on me then again. Okay. Uh, and, and I'm going to show you how in the words of Malachi, uh, when he tells us to prove or put God to the test, and then how God uh, opens up the windows of heaven and then delivers to you provisions, here it is, that you don't have room enough to receive. Have you ever thought about that? Lord, what do you mean by I won't have enough room to receive it? Because God tells them in Isaiah 54, I need for you to enlarge your tent because what I'm about to do for you, you're going to need the extra space. I need for you to dig your pegs deeper because what I have for you, you're going to need stronger pegs to hold what I got for you. I need for you to stretch your ropes because what I'm going to do for you, you're going to need all the elasticity you can find in your life. And some of you, that's what you need to hear. I'm done. That's what you're going to need to hear. You need to hear that. God said, I, I, I put you in exile so I could stretch you. And now I'm done stretching you. I'm going to bring you out. But all I want you to do is just shout and thank me for bringing you through the exile. See that? I'm thinking about an individual who's unemployed for two years. Stretched. When God going to open this door? Then God finally opens the door. In fact, that person was the impetus of this sermon as I thought about that person. God brought them back. Here, they lost the job, didn't lose it, laid off, went somewhere else, and God brought them back here two years later. Here back to the DMV. Because God is a God who not only restores, but God fulfills his promise. I told you, the 70 years will end, but I will revisit you. Well, yeah. by the way, did I tell you, even in those two years, didn't go without? That's how God works. God specializes. What seems impossible to you is possible. Awake! Clothe yourself in your strength and clothe yourself in beautiful garments. Shake yourself from the dust and loose the chains around your neck. Be free. Leave this church different than the way you came in. Lord, break the yoke today in somebody's life.